One of the great weapons that Satan wields against timid Christians is fear. Christians who desire to live for Jesus but know enough about what it costs to follow him sometimes retreat and try to be content with less than radical pursuit of God, with less than a complete and satisfying delight in him. Because we know that if we are really going to go all in with God, we could pay a price. And many are unwilling to pay that price and so find some consolation or a lessened contentment, a mediocre Christianity, small amounts of joy, and live out their life that way. These Christians content themselves that it's okay not to be a frontliner. It's okay not to be like Paul, like Jim Elliot. Everyone can't be that way. I guess I'm just relegated to an average relationship with God. Today, Christian friends, I want to whet your appetite a little bit and encourage you to inch a little closer to that scary place of radical commitment to Christ. I want to show you from Psalm 119, verses 17 through 32, that there are risks involved in following Christ if you're going to do so wholeheartedly, but I want to challenge you to consider walking with him a little closer to the edge, not just so that you can walk close to an edge and and experience thrill, but so that you will actually experience the most fulfillment and delight in God that is possible. I think very little has happened of any significance in Christian history, in church life, or in your life that has not included risk. We have proven this at Sun Valley Church, haven't we? We moved from Westside Baptist Church About 15 years ago, uh, we we really weren't uh, all that experienced in planting churches. In fact, I don't think any any of us have. 75 of us went out to East Valley and began a church. We we risked leaving that, that security of our mother church, a growing and vibrant church, to start something new in East Valley. And here we are today. God has proven himself faithful to us through all this. But we have risked as a church. You, you, you yourselves have proven that that risk is part of life. You, you yourselves are involved in personal relationships, which requires risk. History is riddled with stories of risk and reward. But because I want you as your pastor to experience maximum Christianity, maximum delight, maximum God, I hope to encourage you to consider risking a little bit more than you currently might be, a little bit more than you might be comfortable with for the cause of Christ and for your own joy. Let me start with a definition of risk. Risk is an action that exposes you to the possibility of injury or loss. Injury and loss could come in all shapes and sizes, all forms. I remember back when I was a youth pastor at Westside Baptist Church, when we first got there, Amy Lyon, who one of us, um, was in the high school group there. I think she was a sophomore in high school. And we took the whole high school youth group down to Southern California in a, a couple of school buses, refurbished. Uh, we would make this our traveling summer camp, really. We would stop at different places and enjoy different things. One of the first stops we made was at the Smith River in Northern California. This was a pristine river, a crystal clear river that was surrounded by sheer cliffs on either side, and we thought it might be a fun thing to stop and, and uh, jump off some of those cliffs into the water. And 
And we, we, we found a rock that was sufficiently high and, and kids started jumping off and then Amy Lyon, the first girl in our youth group to jump off the rock, stepped up and took the risk and jumped 60 feet into this water with the rest of us. And she continues to talk about that story today and, and how thrilling it was for her. But that was just the risk of maybe landing awkwardly. Maybe there's more risk involved than that, but at the time that's what we thought. But risk begins with, I mean, could be as little as that or as great as dying for the cause of Christ, being burned at the stake for sharing the gospel, for believing in Jesus. These things that we're facing in the Christian life, the risks of being a Christian, truly following Christ wholeheartedly, could cost us health, money, reputation, or even life. But risk in itself has no inherent value. The only value in risk comes with what we are risking for. Someone who risked much, of course, was the Apostle Paul. Reviewing his life reveals the reality of risk and reward for those who are willing to radically pursue God, which is what I want to convince you of this morning. But before we proceed, I want to say that I think that the word risk is sort of an insufficient word for what I'm describing. I really don't believe that there is true risk for a Christian. Nothing we do or plan to do for God is an ultimate risk. Sure, it may cost us our reputation, health, or even our life, but ultimately, God is watching over us and not allowing anything outside of his will to take place. So is it truly risk? For us, it sure seems this way because we may experience injury and loss, so I'm going to use that term. But getting back to the Apostle Paul's life, let me read for you some of the things he experienced in his life. From 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, Paul reviews, he said, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked night and day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. Friends, these were the risks that the apostle knew that he was going to encounter. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one, five times he was beaten to within an inch of his life, where his back was actually made to look like hamburger, very few people survived consciously through this 39 lashes. Five times? I think if I were the Apostle Paul, I would have been called to a different ministry about after the second time, maybe the first. Why did he endure all this? Why did he keep going on these missionary journeys one after another, putting himself in harm's way? Why did he keep pushing into the darkness? I think our text today in Psalm 119 will give us some clues. Our text today will help us see some of the risks that we will most likely face, even here in Yakima. And my prayer is that God will help us navigate this path, this scary path for some, to the glory of God and to our great delight. So turn your Bibles with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 119. Psalm 119, verses 17 through 32. You heard that read earlier in the day. 
But I'm going to highlight some verses as we go through this to show you what I'm trying to communicate. But by way of introduction, uh, as we have been studying Psalm 119 now for a, a few months, uh, the first stanza, that is verses 1 through 8, promises happiness to those who pursue holiness. Uh, the second stanza, beginning in verse 9 through verse 16, uh, explains how to pursue holiness. It, it, the, the, the psalmist says there in that stanza that we must pursue him wholeheartedly and store up and speak out and meditate on and delight in God's word if we're going to delight in God, if we're going to find him. The, the first two stanzas identify the importance of making this pursuit of God wholehearted and delightful. Now here in stanza three and four, the author describes the difficulties that we can expect to encounter if we intend to pursue holiness. So before you sign on the dotted line, the author is saying, let me share with you some difficulties that you will face if you're going to pursue Christ wholeheartedly. I want to list for you the risks of righteousness. So our first point today is, what are the risks of righteousness? What's the risk of pursuing God wholeheartedly, of delighting in Him, of satisfying ourselves in Him alone? Doesn't the world reject those who desire to seek God? If you actually attempt to make God your delight above all other things in this world, will it sit well with those in this world around you who aren't pursuing those things? Have you ever encountered resistance or maybe even rejection or worse because of your pursuit of God? Jesus made it obvious that we would encounter resistance. He said this in John 15, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The Apostle Paul also made it obvious in his writings that we would have resistance. He uses the words affliction, persecution, hardship, suffering, and trials over 100 times in his letters. Paul knew, Jesus knew, that we would encounter resistance if we're going to pursue him wholeheartedly. Peter also knew this. He himself died by way of crucifixion upside down for the cause of Christ. He knew the risks he was going to face, and he wanted to share those very same concerns with us. In his first epistle, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says this, so that we're not confused. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Friends, it's not strange if you encounter persecution, if you have to deal with the risks of being a follower of Jesus. This is, this is what it means to follow Jesus. We signed up for this. In stanzas three and four, the author identifies four risks that come to those who seek to find their delight in God. Listen to see if you have encountered some of these. The first is seen in verse 19 where it says, I'm a sojourner on the earth. Alienation, sojourning. The author here calls himself a sojourner on the earth. In other translations, it's described as stranger. The idea of being a sojourner is that as believers, we are just passing through this world. This is not our final destination. This is not some place where we'll want to put down roots and call it home of homes. In verses 19 and 20, it seems that the author knows that 
a sojourner will need to get as much of God's word into his soul as he can if he's going to be able to navigate this risk of alienation. The word sojourner also indicates some level of this alienation. The word itself could be understood to mean alienation. The world rejects the godly one for one reason or another. The author experienced some kind of alienation from the ungodly in verses 21 and 23. Wicked rulers rejected him, scorned him. He knew that the only only way to successfully navigate this dangerous world was to be saturated with the word of God. And so if you and I are going to survive the risks of following Christ, particularly the risk of alienation, we're going to have to value and take in the word of God. If you're going to be a person who finds his delight in God and pursues holiness wholeheartedly, you will be a stranger and alien. This world is not our home. The Apostle Paul tried to clearly communicate that to the Philippian church. Chapter 3, verse 20, he said, But our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. It's there. We are strangers and aliens here. Is this world your home, friend? Have you put down roots here? Is this place where you find your comfort? Or do you feel like an alien? Are you a stranger, an exile? Are you looking for another city, a better city, whose founder and architect is God, as Moses describes? The next next risk that we will see in our pursuit of Christ is slander. We see this in verses 22 and 23. Take away from me scorn and contempt, the author says, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. The risk of slander usually accompanies alienation. Whenever anyone is being alienated from the group, it begins in the form of slander. But it's not slander to call a Christian a stranger or an alien because that's true. Slander means that what is being said is untrue. As people who are pursuing holiness and seeking to find our satisfaction in God above all else, we can be and are slandered as being arrogant, having a holier-than-thou attitude, being unkind, being unloving, being accused of being intolerant. Have you ever experienced that? Paul received this kind of treatment also. The psalmist is saying that not fitting in, being alienated is hard enough. But when one adds false accusations to the equation, it becomes heavy and a persecution. When we are accused of being unkind, unloving, or judgmental, I think it's painful for us, isn't it? Because that is exactly the opposite of what we're trying to be. We want to be loving. We want to be kind. We want to be patient with those around us, even those who don't believe like we do. The reason that the believer receives scorn and contempt and slander is because they keep God's testimonies. Those who have not submitted to God, those who who don't keep his commandments, who could care less about Scripture, hate those who do. Those whose righteous lives around them expose their darkness and and their rebellion against God, they do not appreciate. Jesus said this in John 3, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because 
their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the evil, or hates the light rather, that does not come to the light. Lest his work should be exposed. The reason that our friends and neighbors are uncomfortable around us, don't invite us to their parties, uh, in fact may even hate us and alienate us and maybe even slander us, is because when we pursue holiness and righteousness, it exposes the lack thereof in their lives. This is the treatment that Jesus received for being righteous. In Hebrews chapter 12, we read this, verses 2 and 3. As Christians, we need to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what did he do? Endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Christian friend, the kindest man who ever lived, the most gentle man who ever lived, the most loving man who ever lived, was despised, shamed, and dealt with with hostility. And so the author of Hebrews is telling us we shouldn't grow weary and faint-hearted if we experience the same things as Jesus did. If we're going to follow Jesus, if we're going to pursue him wholeheartedly, this is exactly what we can expect. It's interesting in verse 22 of Psalm 119, which says, Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. That the argument of this request, the argument of the psalmist here, is is this. Because I'm blameless, God, please take away persecution from me. I just want to suggest to you that there's only two ways to remove risks and persecution from the life of a Christian. And it's this. One, put your hope in God and ask him to remove them. Ask him to intervene. And he may. He may not. Of course, there are no promises that we're going to have an easy life. In fact, we're promised other things. But that's the first way that you can try to get out of being slandered, alienated, scorned. The second way is just simply this. Stop pursuing holiness and make the world more comfortable. Fit in, give up, go with the flow. But Charles Bridges calls taking up our cross, enduring slander for the cause of Christ, he calls it this, the badge of discipleship. If we are being persecuted because we keep God's testimonies, it's evidence, friends, of our adoption. It's evidence of our Father's special love. It's evidence of the indwelling, comforting, supporting Holy Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Do you possess the badge of discipleship, Christian friend? The third risk that we're going to face if we're going to follow Christ is the risk of humiliation. Look at verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Clinging to the dust here is a way of saying I am totally humiliated. Why would a person pursuing holiness, uh, seeking God, um, feel humiliated? Well, they're they're being publicly humiliated by, by those who don't follow Christ because they're doing the very best to live according to the word of God. I, I just talked about this. And this brings on feelings of jealousy, hatred, spite, alienation, slander in those who aren't pursuing God. Clinging to the dust also communicates uh, that that life is, is, is in jeopardy. 
My life is close to gone, is another way to view that phrase. So the world's hatred for those who follow Jesus wholeheartedly can be severe. The fourth risk that we might face if we're going to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, if, if he is going to be our delight, is sorrow. We see this in verse 28. It says this, my soul melts away for sorrow. Why would this author include that line? Where does sorrow come from? Well, it doesn't take too much thought, does it? If we're going to pursue God and delight in him instead of the things of this world, we're going to encounter alienation. What's alienation bring? Sorrow. We, we don't want to be alienated. It, it brings on slander. I don't enjoy being slandered. It, it causes me sorrow. Humiliation does the same thing. I, we don't want to experience those things, do we? And so when we do, it causes us sorrow. Have you been rejected because of Christ? That's going to bring on sorrow. Have you been slandered because of your stand with, with Christ? That'll bring on sorrow. Friends, God brings these things into our lives, not to beat us down as Christians, not to keep us in our place as Christians, but to accomplish his work in us as Christians. In God's wisdom, he takes us through deep water to cleanse our souls. He, he walks us through the fires of tribulation to purify our spirits. He allows us to be down and out to help us realize and embrace our dependency upon him. These are the risks of following Jesus. Are you willing to take these risks? If you are, then you'll be one that's going to be making many requests to God that we see here in my second point, the requests of the righteous. So we've seen the risks of the righteous. Here are the requests. The psalmist knows that, that he needs God's help to face these trials. And so he, we see four different requests in these two stanzas. The first is this. In verse 18, he says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. The writer acknowledges that unless God opens our minds to understand God's word, we will never benefit from the word. Now, this, this is assuming that the word is very important to the navigation of the Christian life. Now, the author has already established that fact. He, he's, he wants to move on and, and say, unless I understand this word, unless, God, you open my eyes to this word, it'll be of no use to me. This, this emphasizes the necessity of the illumination of Scripture from the Holy Spirit to each of us. Now, this prayer in verse 18 isn't suggesting that God's word is difficult to understand. No, it's emphasizing that our minds are darkened by sin. To, to make it through the trials of life, we must understand God's word. And to understand God's word, we must have the blinders removed. And so we pray. God, please illumine your word to my mind. Take away the darkness of my heart. Take away the dullness of my mind that I might understand your word. The next request we see is in verse 26. It says this, when I was told of my ways, you answered me, teach me your statutes. He's pleading with God, God, please teach me your statutes. Similar to the previous request, 
unless the Holy Spirit actually teaches us the word, it remains opaque, it remains indiscernible. The Holy Spirit speaks to us through the word. Um, and let me just add this. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul says that God supplies teachers for his people. Um, and, and so we need, to, we need to access these who God has given to the church. Uh, we need to own a study Bible. Uh, do you have a good study Bible? I would recommend the MacArthur Study Bible, the ESV Study Bible, the, the, the Reformation Study Bible. And, and take advantage of the teachers that God has supplied. The request is, teach me your statutes. Are you accessing yourself to teachers? Go, get, get apps that can give you access to the preaching of John MacArthur, of R.C. Sproul, of John Piper, of these men of God who have studied the word their entire lives, who have preached decades on the scriptures that we can access with a click of the button. Be taught God's word. Be in church. Be here. I'm so thankful that you were here this morning, that you were listening to the word of God being taught. This is what we must have if we're going to be able to survive the risks of the Christian life. The next request we see in verse 27. He says, make me understand the way of your precepts. Now these all sound very similar, these requests, but I want to suggest to you that this is a request to go to a little deeper level. Um, it's, it's like, I guess an example would be of, of this would be my high school chemistry class. I sat in that high school chemistry class every day. I never skipped school. I was there. I was in class. I was book open, pen in hand, and I did not understand chemistry. Teacher taught it. John didn't understand it. So my point is this. You can sit under the instruction of the Word of God. You can listen to Piper, MacArthur, Sproul. You can be here every Sunday at Sun Valley Church and, and hear the Word taught. But God must help you understand it. God must take you to that, to that level of understanding that the, that the, the psalmist here is describing, uh, seeking God to reveal some, some things about his word that we wouldn't have unless God was active, Th things that will help us uh, through the, the valley when we're there, to protect us during the trials. The fourth request is seen in verse 29. He says, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. The author knows, just like you and I do, that unless we steer clear of sin, we will constantly struggle in the Christian life. Guard me from false ways. The trials and risks we face will upend us, friends, if our lives are littered with sin. We cannot entertain sin and expect victory in the Christian life. Verse 29, I think, makes a vital connection for all of us. Look at it again. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your laws. How are you going to put false ways far from me, God? Here's how. Sit under the instruction of the word of God. Be taught scripture. These are the requests. Four requests, four risks. That is part of being a Christian. Part of pursuing God wholeheartedly. Now I want to take you to the third point in your outline, the race of the righteous. I get the, the title of this point from verse 32 that says, I will run in the way of your commandments. So the race of the righteous, whether you 
believe it or not, understand it or not, the Christian life is a race. It's, it's more than that. It's a battle full of risks, full of difficulties, full of requirements and expectations. But we are in a race. And in order to successfully run a race, we must be prepared for that race. Although we've already demonstrated that God must meet us, God must teach us if we are going to successfully navigate the struggles of this life, deal with the risk we'll face, we also have some responsibility, don't we, friends? We know this. This is sanctification. Um, it's not monergistic. It's synergistic. Salvation is monergistic. God alone does it. But sanctification, becoming like Jesus, is synergistic. We must participate. Paul identifies this in his letter to the Philippian church in chapter 2. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. So there's two parties involved. Certainly God, he must do, he must save us, he must enlighten the scriptures, he must tune our heart to his word, but we must actually work it out. We must get out of bed. We must actually open the book. We must actually attend church. We're in a race. At the end of the fourth stanza, we see our participation in the race emphasized with three very important verbs in verse 30, 31, and 32. Let's look at these verbs, and I think they'll identify for us what our participation in the race looks like. First is this in verse 30, I have chosen the way of faithfulness, so we must choose the right way. The way of faithfulness is the right way. We must choose that. We won't grow in holiness by accidents, friends. We're not going to wake up one day a spiritual giant. We must choose the right day, every, right way every day. We must make choices. We must apply ourselves to the challenge of diligently following God, choosing to get out of bed, choosing to participate in the body of Christ, choosing to give, choosing to serve, love, and pray. This is choosing the right way. Risk, friends, is part of that way. Risk is part of living for Jesus. We can't shy away from everything that might cause us discomfort. Discomfort is part of the Christian life. Risk is part of living for Jesus. If we're going to survive the risk, we must choose to obey. We must choose to take the risk that God places in front of each and every one of us. Choosing the right way isn't necessarily the safe way. We must choose the right way. Look at verse 31 for the second verb. Cling to God's word. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. In the same way that our soul clings to the dust, as it says in verse 25, we must cling to God's word. What a great challenge for us. When things get rough, when, when, when the path gets difficult, our pursuit of holiness must include a tightening of the grip on the word of God. When we are discouraged and beat down with how the world is treating us, we must intensify our resolve to be people of the word. Friends, we must choose the right way. We must cling to God's word. And then in verse 32, we see the vinyl verb that helps us understand our participation in this pursuit of holiness. It says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What a wonderful verse. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Um, the, the first verse in this stanza, verse 25, um, describes discouragement of the writer. He says, my soul clings to the dust. 
And then it ends here in verse 32 with a deepened commitment to run well. So these risks that he endured because of his dependency on God and his commitment to the word and his love for Christ didn't end in despair. It didn't end in apostasy. It ended with a deepened commitment to run well. What is your view of the Christian life, friend? Is following Jesus just a, a casual stroll down apathetic way, and if you hit a bump, you're off the trail? Is Jesus just an add-on to your busy life, and if you're too busy or if it's inconvenient, you, you're not really following him? Friends, this must not be. What is your view of the Christian life? What does it mean to follow Jesus? Friends, God has, has ordained a path for us to walk on. And this path is, is filled with risks. Um, this, this is the, the place God prepares for those who seek him. Let me give you three particular categories where I think we'll encounter risk in the Christian life. The first is relationships. In 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul speaks to the church about what true love is. Now, that particular chapter is an amazing chapter. Uh, you, you cannot read through 1 Corinthians 13 and realize, or not realize rather, that, that risk is part of loving people. If you're going to love someone, it's going to be risky. Relationships are messy. And that happens in the home, it happens in the church, it happens in your own neighborhoods. If we're going to really have our relationships be influenced by Christ and our love for Christ, we're going to be taking risks. And that's okay. That's where God wants us to be. The next category is in the area of finances. Now, I know... The world is not excited about pastors talking to them about finances. And we try to avoid that conversation here uh, as much as possible. But th this is an obvious place that Jesus spoke of many times, that the, the scriptures speak of many times, that deal with the risks of following Christ as it relates to our finances. You read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul was speaking to the Corinthian church about the Macedonian Christians who gave beyond their ability. That meant they gave more than they could actually afford. They, they took a risk. They might not be able to supply their own needs by how much they gave. That's the call of the gospel, isn't it? Our, our whole being must be committed sacrificially to Christ. Our relationships, our finances. Do you remember what Jesus taught his disciples uh, while they were watching people give at the temple, people were walking by the, the, the box to put their gifts in, and this poor old lady, a widow who had no money except two pennies, came by and she put those two pennies in the offering box. And Jesus said something amazing. He said, that woman has put in more than all the others. Why? Because she sacrificed all to give. Now, that's risky. Many financial counselors would say that's foolish. 
That's not prudent. How is she going to buy food for the rest of the day? She won't even afford to be able to put down 10% of her next month's rent. She just gave it all away. That's foolish. God doesn't expect that of you, but Jesus commended it. Friends, are you, are you taking any risks in the arena of finances? Or are you so safe and secure the world could explode and you still have your savings account? You know, in this church, we, we have endeavored to follow Christ. We've endeavored to, to honor him in all ways. And, and God has blessed us. And because of that blessing, we've had to add space, ministry space, buildings. And now we're sitting here with a building that we've raised a lot of money for. Um, and, and God has been so gracious to us as a church. He, he is, he, we've never ended one year in the red. 15 years running, God, because of his faithfulness to us, through the faithfulness of you, his people, we have always finished in the black. We have, we have paid off this building. We've paid off this, the property across the street that we're using for our parking lot. There remains a little bit of debt on this building. Have you participated? Have you given sacrificially? Have you maybe taken a risk financially for the cause of Christ? Even here where you attend, God expects that of us. The third category that I want to mention is the category of witness. Friends, Jesus said in, in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. He said in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's not unclear what God expects us, expects of us concerning the gospel. We're his witnesses. Friends, are you saying anything to anyone about Christ? You know, I've talked to people about this before. They go, I don't want to burn any bridges. That, when I say things about Jesus, it burns bridges. It causes tension in a relationship. Others say, well, I'm working up to sharing the gospel, but I want to make sure that our relationship is secure and, and they trust me, and I want to wait to make sure uh, that they're not going to be offended by what I say. Friends, the gospel is offensive. You will never get to the place in any relationship where it won't be uncomfortable to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Just, just understand that. There will never be the perfect time. The right time is now. The day of salvation is today. Have you taken a risk in your relationships with those who don't know Jesus, maybe even in your own family, at work, at school, have you taken a risk that God expects of you to share the gospel of Jesus Christ? To tell people that, that their sins can be forgiven if they'll just put their faith in Christ? That if they confess their sins and run to Jesus and embrace him as God, that they will know him and have their sins forgiven? Have you done that? I pray that you will. We need to take risks in relationships, finances, and witness. You say, Pastor John, those, I, I, I know, I know this is all true, but I, I'm so timid and so weak and so fearful. Let me try to share with you some re rewards of taking risks for Christ. Rewards for taking risks of Christ. And this is not in your, in your outline, so you'll need to take some notes. The first is this, assurance of salvation. I talk to so many Christians who are uncertain of their salvation. And yet, 1 Peter says this, verse 1, 6, and 7. In this you rejoice, 
though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, various risks, hardships. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you're going to live the Christian life, it will cost you risk. There will be various trials, but when you are tested, it proves the, uh, the genuineness of your faith. It brings an assurance of salvation. That is the first reward of risk I want to share with you. The second is this, bounty. God's bounty. Look at verse 17 in Psalm 119. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live. Deal bountifully. Friends, this is a reward of those who earnestly seek God, who, who delight in him, who pursue holiness. God's bounty. God's protection is the, is the next reward. God's protection and strength through trials. The, the author is, throughout these two stanzas, repeatedly asking the only one who can help. God. In verse 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. He's, he's pleading with God for strength, for protection. God is the only one who can provide it. And so when you experience protection and strength in the midst of trial, in the midst of these, these scary risks, it, it affirms to you, this is real. God is at work in me and through me. When I was growing up, we knew a missionary family in Ecuador uh, the Drown family, and Frank Drown, who was the father uh, and a Bible translator to the Hebrew Indians, headhunters, he just passed away last week, but um, I remember hearing stories from Frank Drown about how God protected him and gave him strength in the midst of his trials. He was a Bible translator for 40 years, like I said, amongst headhunters. On one occasion when he was, he was hiking from one village to the next to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to that next village. A group of natives uh, were waiting in ambush to kill him. They, they were opposed to what he was doing. His light was, was exposing their darkness, and so they were going to kill him. And so Frank walked from this one village to the next, uh, ministered in that next village without incident. Later on, one of those men who were waiting in ambush for, for Frank drowned, uh, told him that the reason they didn't attack him on that trail that, that day was because he was surrounded by a great army. Yes, these natives who were out to kill him, this individual, God-fearing, God-delighting Christian, they were going to kill him. They saw an army around Frank Drown when he was by himself. God protects and gives strength to those who will walk in his way. Next reward that I want to share with you is a deeper experience of spiritual vibrancy. Verse 25 refers to this. He says, my soul clings to thus. Give me life. Give me life. Not just physical life, but give me vibrant spiritual life. I cannot make it, Lord, unless you give me some vibrancy to my Christian life. I can't take the doldrums any longer. I can no longer take this mediocrity that has been plaguing my life for so long. Lord, give me life. This is what God offers to those who will pursue him. Look at verse 32. 
I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. What a beautiful phrase, when you enlarge my heart. God, I can do this if you'll just give me a vibrant Christian life. If you'll just enlarge my heart, this communicates a a greater capacity for God's goodness. Taking risks, following Christ into scary places brings rewards of assurance, bounty, God's protection, and an experience of spiritual vibrancy. Theodore Roosevelt said, far better is it to dare mighty things, that is to, to, to take great risks, to win glorious triumphs even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those poor spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in a gray twilight that knows not victory nor defeat. Friends, I don't want a Christian life like that. I don't want to live in the gray haze. I want to live a vibrant, exciting, risk-filled Christian life so I can see God at work in me, and I want that for you, dear friends. The next reward for risk is greater joy. Yeah, greater joy. Could you use some more joy? I doubt anyone will say no. Turn over to Psalm 4 with me. And I want to read for you how the risks that David took to follow Christ wholeheartedly resulted in greater joy. Psalm chapter 4, he says in verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. He was distressed by those around him, those who were alienating him, slandering him, uh, making him sorrowful. this is, this is what he says in verse 2, O men, how long will my honor be turned to shame? He goes on and on in this, in this uh, chapter 4 of Psalms about the, the things that are bothering him concerning those who are, who are making his life difficult. And then in verse 7 he says this, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Friends, in spite of all the pressures that the world applies to us, in spite of all the risks that we encounter for following Jesus, our joy is greater than the world's joy. We have greater joy in our hearts than they have when it is best for them. Greater joy. If you have not yet been persuaded that the path of risk, this, this way of God's commandments that he's called us to walk is not a good way. If you have not yet been persuaded, let me share with you one last reward that I hope will do the trick. Eternal bliss. Listen to what Paul says to his um, disciple Timothy right before he was going to die. So Paul's about to die. He writes one last letter to his beloved disciple Timothy, and he says this in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not just Paul, listen to these great words at the end of verse 8, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Friends, Are you looking forward to the appearing of Christ? Are you you pursuing him wholeheartedly? Are you delighting in God? Then eternal bliss is in store for you. Friends, it's it's in store for you. What a future we have if we'll but follow Christ wholeheartedly. 
Won't you please follow him? Won't you make him your all? Make him your full satisfaction above all these cheap substitutes that the world offers us every day. Make Christ your all. And we will receive the crown of glory, eternal bliss, heaven with Christ and one another. Oh God, make that true of us. Jim Elliot recorded this in his journal. God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, that I may burn for thee, consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? Friends, if we will keep our eyes on Jesus, if we will pursue him with our whole heart, our whole soul, all of our mind and all of our strength, friends, the risks that we will encounter, the, the difficulties and trials that we will face will do nothing but strengthen us for the race. These are intended by God to do just that, to make us fit for heaven. Oh, what a glorious thought. Join me in prayer.